Welcome to part three of Conversation of the Decade. And this is where we have some real good fun and diving to Rajiv's book. Rajiv, let us talk about your book, The Future of Power. What made you choose this title? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when I write a book, it goes through so many working titles. And, and each working title represents a particular aspect of the book, a particular focus of the book. And as the focus changes, new things get added that I get a different working title. So there was a time when the working title was Algorithms and Beings. The algorithms representing the machine intelligence and beings representing the consciousness. And this title, Algorithms and Beings, representing the, the tension, the collaboration, the conflicts between these two. And that was, uh, uh, but then some people felt it's very metaphysical and very abstract. Uh, the average person would say, why should I worry about it? Uh, so then, then I had another one called the battle for agency, uh, which is about your privacy, your agency being hacked. And are you really in control or are you in, or, on autopilot? Are you being dumbed down because the machines are smarter than you? So I, I went through that. And again, people said this would be brilliant for people who have a background in psychology, social psychology. Uh, but you know, the average guy says, uh, I'm interested in a job. So what's in it for me? So you need to talk about jobs and you need to talk about more materialistic things that are at stake. So that's when I started saying, okay, that's, that's interesting. Uh, so I, I decided that there is the physical body uh, there is, and there is the psychological, emotional, mental body inside. So at the physical level, you have the battleground of economics, you know, jobs, you know, this kind of thing, unemployment. That's a sort of physical health of a society. And there is, there is a, AI is playing a big role in disrupting that. Also, at the physical level is geopolitics, military, weapons, all, all of these kind of things. So these two, uh, the, the economic uh, jobs, educational impact, that is one kind of... Uh, physical infrastructure of the world and of a society and the geopolitics of weapons and military is another kind of uh, uh, physical level. So those two battlegrounds are sort of at the physical level. And then the two battlegrounds, which are number three and four are more at the in inner level. Uh, one is about agency uh, and are we being hacked and uh, is our agency in the control of digital networks or are we fully in control ourselves? Uh, and, and of course, the battle for self, which talk, which goes even further and even deeper and says, is, is this notion of who I am being questioned and being challenged and disrupted because now these AI systems are going to give me pleasures, artificial gratification, and I'm no longer looking inside for the bliss that our tradition, our Vedic tradition teaches. I'm more looking at somebody pushing buttons and buying into some streaming service, buying into some augmented reality to keep myself, you know, uh, engaged and 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 distracted. So I, I had two uh, outer world bodily, uh, physical kind of uh, uh, disruptions, which are the battlegrounds one and two, and two of them on the inner world. Uh, the, the psychological world and the spiritual world, which are battlegrounds three and four. So I came up with this sort of, uh, uh, you know, four battlegrounds map. And then I said that I should pick one country, uh, one major place and apply all of this as a case study uh, to illustrate with concrete data, concrete uh, examples, 
facts, how all of these four will play out. And so the battleground five became the case study of India. How is India affected? And, and I called it a stress test on India. So that's how the five uh, battlegrounds uh, emerged. Thank you, Rajiv. So, so let's dive into the battlegrounds. Um, tell us more about battleground one, economy, industry, education, and jobs. It sounds like an important subject to me, Rajiv. Yes, and you know, when I sequenced these in the book, my favorites were the ones that are more subtle, but then people said, you know, to get somebody's attention right away, you should, you, in the beginning, I mean, I have so many people reviewing and commenting and giving feedbacks. I don't listen to everybody, but I do, I do take note of how, how the public will respond. And so I thought it was, it was a wise, wise input that I should start out with a battleground, which is very pragmatic, which affects a lot of young people. They're all looking for jobs. Everybody's concerned about the economy. So here's a, here's a takeoff point where we can start the conversation. So the, the battleground for economies basic, basically says that AI is, is like the, another industrial revolution. Uh, those who are the inventors and who, who have all this technology and it needs a large amount of capital to deploy these models on a global scale, they are going to become like the new industrial powers, be they governments, be they private industries. Uh, and those who don't have it are going to be second tier at best, maybe as employees working for them. And third tier, which means they are not ne neither producers of that nor employees working there, but they are sort of like consumers uh, and they may or may not have a whole lot of jobs or very menial jobs. So this uh, disruption of the economy, I think is a very serious matter. A lot of people said that, you know, the industrial revolution created more jobs than it destroyed, which is true, but it created these jobs in England and destroyed the jobs in India. So the whole colonial enterprise happened because of uh, the co colonization of India by Britain and colonization of many parts of the world by France, etc., would not have been possible if they were not industrial powers. So same way, yes, AI will create a lot of jobs, but for whom? And it'll destroy jobs, but whose jobs? It's not the same people necessarily. Uh, so the, 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 some people, some industries, some communities will lose a lot and others will gain a lot. And you cannot say that it all balances out because it disrupts, disrupts societies and disrupts the, the global system. The world order gets disrupted by all this. Uh, so, so I see AI a faster, more accelerated version of what happened in the industrial revolution because that took 50 years. Uh, there wasn't so much capital available. There wasn't so much knowledge being transmitted very quickly. Uh, people, had to, people had to be trained. It took a while to, for the industry to spread from place to place. Uh, now there's global venture capital. Money is available, lots of money available. If you have a model that works and makes money, tons of money will come your way. Uh, so scalability and speed of adoption are much faster. Uh, so the change that we're talking about will be dramatic. I predict in this 10 years, uh, by 2030, uh, we'll have the equivalent of 50 years of industrial revolution that happened in the past. And so this will create a change that people are not ready for. Uh, and, and the surprising thing is uh, the people who are knowledgeable of all this are the ones who are producing the change, who are the haves, who are the suppliers of AI. And most economists, uh, don't know enough to think about the impact of, uh, on the economy. Most social scientists are not thinking about the impact on society. 
most NGOs are not thinking about how AI will affect their particular area of work. You know, people are doing so much good work in different NGOs and they all ought to become AI savvy, but they are not. So uh, I, I felt that this, uh, the first uh, encounter, the first uh, battleground uh, will, will create a disruption in society in very pragmatic ways. And it's going to unleash uh, probably violence, probably communal violence, unrest. There'll be large amounts of people who feel that they've been disenfranchised, they've been left behind, and they will fight back in some way. So that's my first battleground. That's fascinating. Thank you. And you also talk about education and getting that right. Any nation that wants to be sport and self-determine their future with artificial intelligence. Do you have any thoughts uh, on education? Uh, it seems like the system needs to change, Roger. Yeah. So, you know, the education which is being taught all over the world is largely past oriented. Uh, so a lot of it is about old stuff, uh, you know, rather than where the future is. And a lot of, it, lot of that is uh, a, a kind of uh, the, the economy that has existed till now, uh, rather than the new, new economy. Uh, uh, companies say that they will retrain workers uh, who are disrupted, but this takes a lot of money. And will they, will they have they set aside the money required to retrain millions of workers around the world? The reports I have read suggest that they have not. So what you'll find is uh, the people who are in the middle of their careers will be considered uneducated or not sufficiently educated or educated without the relevant things. And they'll be discarded in some ways or maybe their wages will go down and some other people who are very talented will go up. You know, those who are privy to go to good colleges and universities in the world, in all countries, there are some communities like that, they'll do okay. I mean, I'm not, for, in, for instance, in the case of India, I'm not concerned about Bangalore and I'm not concerned about the uh, investors sitting in Mumbai. I mean, they'll probably make a lot of money, but I'm worrying about huge states with huge amounts of people. You know, and one of the things to think about in Battleground One is overpopulation. Mm -hmm. Overpopulation is a very big factor because if India had only 200, 300, 400 million people rather than 1.3 billion, you could argue that, okay, retraining these people can be done. Uh, you know, you don't have to feed so many people and providing for a smaller number of people is going to be okay. Machines will do much of the work and you could, you could more easily come up with a strategic plan to make the population happy and make them contented. Uh, but with the gigantic population that exists out there, you have to provide with, you know, clothing, food, medicine, water, clean water, housing, all kinds of stuff for these people. Yeah. So this is, this is quite a challenge. Uh, especially for overpopulated countries. Uh, this is a lot of South Asia like that, Southeast Asia is like that, parts of Africa like Nigeria like that. So the countries that are not very rich, I mean, it's one thing if you're Japan and you are populated, have a high population density, but we also have a lot of money and a lot of technologies to be okay. But countries that don't have that wealth and don't have that sophistication, highly educated people, at the same time have a large number of people, human beings to feed, uh, I think I'm going to get into serious trouble. Yeah, I think these are fundamental subjects, this battleground one that you've covered, and I think they're really important. So, Rajiv, let us move on to battleground two, geopolitics and military. You discuss your thoughts on the US, China and India. Can you tell us more about this important global battleground? 
So, you know, the AI is, a, is, is, go, is going to uh, bring in new kinds of weapons. Uh, quantum computing will bring in ways of uh, defeating the encryption and the security of anybody's network with, if they don't have a quantum computer and you do. And you'll be able to hack into their military systems and their energy grids and whatnot and create havoc there. Uh, so these are new forms of warfare, cyber warfare. Uh, some of it has started, but a lot more is coming. And I think many countries are just not ready. I, I know for a fact India is not that ready as, as much as it should be. Uh, U.S. is concerned. U.S. also got hacked by the Russians with Cambridge Analytica and so on. Uh, and this is not an easy problem to solve. Once there's quantum computing, the problem will get even worse. But even physical weapons, uh, you know, drones, uh, robotic soldiers that fight without the human restrictions, uh, underwater new, uh, you know, drone submarines that are without pilots that are, you know, under the water. So all kinds of, uh, you know, strategic, uh, you know, co collaborative uh, weapon systems, large weapon systems that are automated, uh, you know, that, that kind of have enough knowledge about the enemy, enough knowledge about one's own strengths and weaknesses to constantly optimize, re-optimize and continue this war going. This kind of an automation, automated warfare uh, is so destructive potentially. Uh, it, it, you know, the scale of uh, uh, what can happen, the harm that can happen and the collateral damage of a whole lot of people is so huge. Uh, you know, we talk about nuclear disarmament, this will be much worse. This would, this would be a bigger conversation. I don't know why the powers that started so much, have paid so much emphasis on nuclear disarmament have not even started the conversation on this kind of uh, weaponry. And there are no discussions uh, in the United Nations uh, or among the uh, nuclear powers or other people uh, to talk about the potentials for uh, militarization of AI. Uh, it's very interesting, Matthew, that UN has not started a conversation saying, hey, you know, we have, we have treaties that we won't weaponize the Antarctica, uh, we, we will not militarize the moon, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, limitations on nuclear weapons. I mean, I know China is not part of that treaty, it's US and Russia, uh, but at least those conversations exist and those mechanisms exist. But people have not started that conversation on the uh, how to how to manage this weaponization of AI. Now that's quite interesting that nobody nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? And once again, um, well, let me ask you a, an additional question, if you don't mind, Raju. Do you think that artificial intelligence may actually solve? the conflicts that we see between the West and the East, do you think AI may actually come up with a solution that actually takes us beyond the conflicts we're under? Yes. I mean, the thing is, if human beings are willing to uh, give up the ego, that is all boils down to that. Uh, the individual ego that I'm Rajiv and I'm a billionaire and I want to become a hundred billionaire and then a trillionaire. I mean, at some point, if I have a change in consciousness, that's a prerequisite that says, okay, enough of that. Now I got to do something else with myself. That's a prerequisite. And then the other prerequisite is collective identity that I belong to this community or this nation or whatever this identity I have. Uh, uh, I don't want that us as a group want to go after these other people and, and get more share of resources and so on. If there is a change of that heart, 
then I think AI becomes a great mechanism to carry it forward and you know humanize uh, humanize humanity, if you will, uh, make us more humane, like we should be. But as long as the character of the individual remains egotistical and power hungry, uh, and and uh, you know, in the last five hundred years, with so much technology, the character of the individual human hasn't necessarily become much better. I mean, we if you look at horrible things that some people do in the world. And if you look at uh, the meanness, the selfishness, the, the greed, infinite greed to accumulate, it hasn't been satiated just because now people have more of it. So it doesn't mean that they would, don't crave even more. So I don't know if uh, uh, humankind's character will change because of technology and because of overabundance. So far, it hasn't. Yeah, that's a great, that's a beautiful response. And I, I think what you're alluding to, what I'm hearing is artificial intelligence itself is inviting a greater maturity in our humanity and our leadership. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Artificial intelligence is raising the stakes. Uh, it, it says if you're a mean world of selfish people, uh, artificial intelligence will exacerbate the problems and help you destroy each other more. Uh, on the other hand, if you are if you are good human beings, and, and you are you you need ways to solve problems, you have lots of disease, you have hunger, you have all kinds of issues, uh, you know you have distrust, and you are honestly, genuinely wanting AI to so, uh, provide solutions, then AI can be a great ally. So AI is a kind of a value neutral and morally and ethically neutral. It depends on the character of the individuals that control it. So, you know, you could have, one could have used the industrial revolution for very benevolent things. I mean, the industrial powers could have said, let's go to every one of these countries, instead of colonizing them, let's put our factories there. I mean, if the, if the raw cotton comes from India, goes to England and turns into, goes to Manchester, turns into textiles, and we sell it back to India, why don't we set up some factories in India? Why don't we, so the French could have set up industries in Africa, they could have set up industries in Vietnam, all the places that the, colon, the colonialists controlled, they could have said, you know, we're all one hum humanity, uh, let's share our knowledge and, and what we achieved with others, and then there would have been no colonial kind of uh, era, and we would have been a happy family. Uh, that didn't happen. So I think while the potential is there, and of course the desire is there, we cannot be presumptuous and assume that that will be the way things turn out. Rajiv, tell us more about Battleground 3, the moronization of the masses, and what you also say is bowing down to the digital deities, Google, DeVita, Twitter, DeVita, and also the Facebook, DeVita. Tell us more about this Battleground 3. Okay, so Battleground 3 is my favorite, but I tucked it away so I don't give too much of a shock right in the beginning and chase my readers away. But I think once they understand it, they like it, they have a lot of fun. So, you know, people love to say these machines are getting smarter and smarter, but the corollary to that is that humans are getting dumber because it's a relative thing. And as we depend more on Google to tell us what, to, what we need to know, and Siri and Alexa, and as we go to, you know, Wikipedia knows everything. The human beings, especially very young kids, tell me, why do I need to learn anything? Whatever I need to know, I'll ask Google. 
I mean, I'll just ask Siri. Siri will tell me, why do I, why do I have to go to school and learn anything? Because they, they already know. Whatever is written in my textbooks, these, these machines know. I'll just pick up the thing and speak and it'll tell me what I need to know. So this dumbing down as a kind of a glorified way of life, thinking that, you know, I, I, I have this asset that has the knowledge I don't need to have. I, I can be a dumb guy. So this is what I'm calling moronization, means turning the world into morons. So morons are these dependent people uh, that are like zombies and they are on autopilot and they are in default mode. You're running your life on default, the default choice. You know, there's very sneaky things that Google has to, uh, to kind of uh, nudge you towards default choices. If you go to Google Calendar, uh, you know, uh, and you set a, if you say 12.30 p.m., uh, you know, this thing with uh, Matthew, uh, then what will happen is in the, in the line which describes the event, uh, it will remove the 1230. It will just say event with Matthew. And then where it has time from to, it will put in the 1230. So it's kind of doing me a favor by putting it where it wants rather than me being able to put it where I want. So it's, uh, and, and if I want to override it, I have to do a lot of overriding to get it the way I, I feel like having it. So my aesthetics, my choice, my way of organizing my life is actually uh, being subordinated. And it, it, it's, it takes more effort for me to do it the way I want. It's easier for me to surrender and say, let Google just do it. But if I were to surrender on a trivial matter like this, the habit is more and more taking over your, default, or your life by default choices. So the system makes default choices for you uh, soon by, based on the AI and the knowledge about you makes default choices for you. And then you begin to live your life more and more in default mode. As you live your life in default mode, you give up your free will, your, your ability and your interest to exercise choice, discretion. Uh, you know, we have individual tastes. I happen to like a certain food. I don't care about you telling me I like a certain music. I don't want you to recommend and I just go on and keep listening to whatever you play. I, I don't, I, I, I want to go and make my own choice of movie. I want to look at all kinds of details about the, uh, different movies and make my choices. And I don't want Netflix to just put me in autopilot where I'm sitting back and happily, happy that they're making good choices for me. What has happened is when they look at research on uh, people's consumers' attitude towards uh, privacy issue vis-a-vis -vis Alexi and uh, you know, all these listening devices, uh, what, what is uh, Alexa and all these listening devices uh, the, the, the ability to speak and get, uh, you know, an answer back in, uh, on, your, on, your, on your Google search. When they look at research on what do people think of all these, uh, they find that uh, the older people, my generation, maybe 10% of them are very happy and they don't mind all this. As you get younger and younger, the percentage goes up. But then the percentage shoots above 50% approval when you go to people who are born after the year 2000. So the people who are under the age of 20, they are, their attitude is, what's wrong? If Google knows more about me than I know, well, Google should tell me what I should do. It should tell me who I should date, where I should go on vacation, what food I should eat. It should just do it for me. So basically, we are going in default mode, autopilot, and I call it the modernization. Now, what is wrong with it is that these people, such people, are intellectually easy to make slaves. It's easy to convert them to another point of view, to tell them what, where to vote, 
to give them some fake news and they'll go for it to uh, not only if you can sell them what what kind of shoes they should wear or what movie they should watch you could even sell them political points of view so this is the this is a loss of agency that's the battleground that's well observed and i really enjoyed reading this section of the book and i just want to ask you one or two other questions rajiv um, you talk about uh, psychology in this and a dopamine type of society, which you've just alluded to. And my question is this, is this uh, are these DeVitas uh, literally reducing the intellectual prowess of, for example, the United States of America to be able to innovate its future? Is this dumbing down of the masses creating a, a, a kind of an intellectual uh, and an educational and an innovation issue where they're not being able to do things like original thinking, critical thinking, or other types of thinking to actually innovate the future of America. Yes. So I call it atrophy. Uh, the, each time, Matthew, you go and delegate and, and outsource something, some faculty of yours to a machine, an algorithm, and each time I do that, then our we are not exercising that part of our mind which we have been, which we have evolved to do, and so it will atrophy. I mean, so a lot of senses, human senses like smell, have atrophied compared to the the sense of smell that animals have because we didn't need it for so much for survival. So as we as we stop using certain faculties, their their sharpness declines. Now this is something exactly an analogy with machine learning. Machine learning becomes sharper with more big data, more challenge, more diversity. If you, show, if you throw millions of examples of big data at the machine, it remains sharp and becomes sharper. And if there's another machine that you don't have that much experience, you're not throwing so much big data at it, it's not gonna be so sharp. Humans, think of a human being also as a learning system similar to machine learning. And the equivalent of big data is experience. And each time, each time I look at a situation and I have to deal with it and I have to make a choice and I, I'm, I then find out I get feedback whether it was a good choice or a bad choice, I learn. It's exactly the way machine learning happens. So just like having no, no big data or little big data atrophies a machine, the same is happening with human beings. So we need to, we need to think about the long-term evolutionary consequences of delegating too much to machines and becoming like dumbed down people. And in this book, I also fear in, in a later uh, battleground that th evol this evolves into a two-tier humanity between the ones who are very superior and the others who are sort of left behind. Uh, and what does that kind of society look like? Thank you, Rajiv. And I think you call them superhuman, don't you? Yes. Um, which I, I think is, it, it ties into some of the uh, uh, past theories from Aristotle and others about superhumans. Um, Rajiv, thank you for sharing uh, with us your thoughts on Battleground 3. Let's look at Battleground 4 now. The loss of selfhood to artificial emotions and gratifications, the crash of civilization. Can you share more about this Battleground 4? So, you know, uh, if uh, uh, if I'm a yogi, uh, uh, and that's my reference point, I'm used to going inside and finding my bliss and finding my joy as a process inside. 
and it's not sensory delights and fixations and addictions and stimulation on the external side that my tradition encourages. So I become more self-sufficient within me. I find the joy and bliss that is built into every human being, every person. Uh, and and uh, it's not about uh, external uh, you know, dependencies. That's the, the Vedic view, the Buddhist, all the Dharma traditions are basically focusing on that. Now, the other approach is uh, a very materialistic approach that I, I have, I, I, I end up with less and less attention span because I need stimulation, I need excitement, I get bored easily. So uh, whether it's substances that I need to consume, or whether it is some movies or sensations, or somebody has to always hype and in, come up with something very intense to keep me, keep me happy. So that kind of an extroverted uh, and driven by external agencies that are not my, controlled by me, but other systems, uh, that, that is a loss of the selfhood as traditionally known. So the, this is a battle for self. Is the self going to be more like the yogi's idea of self? Or is the self going to be more like uh, a whole lot of vendors selling me augmented reality and gloves and uh, in, uh, implants and all kind of uh, apps that are going to keep me happy 20, you know, as, uh, for, for, the, for the rest of my life and, and, and make me more of a moron so I can uh, more dumb down so I can be enjoying all this gratification. This battle for self, uh, I think uh, is dangerous because uh, it seems like very inviting, very exciting. A lot of people say this is great because if AI can do this, we'll have no misery. The point is that you'll be happy slaves. I call them happy slaves. In Battleground 3, you are happy morons. And now you're actually happy slaves because you've given up your sovereignty to these things that you are dependent on. It can be somebody can pull the plug on you. Somebody can say that this guy, we won't give you this. And you have this, uh, this withdrawal symptom all of a sudden. And people who are happy slaves, uh, you know, they are not productive because the machines are doing all the work. They are dumbed down. Uh, in Battleground 3, uh, they become dumbed down and machines have become smarter. And in Battleground 4, the, the self is now uh, happy without having to do any, without having the normal human uh, functions. Uh, you know, I can just be a happy zombie. So what will that lead to? I think, I think one of the scary scenarios is that uh, the people who, I have, who have this technology, which is more, becoming more and more expensive to augment your body and uh, grow another heart and grow another, if your lungs fail, then you could grow a, a second set of lungs or transplant something. People with bionics, with you know, augmented bodies, augmented minds, may be able to live 150 years, 200 years, may be able to have X-ray vision, may be able to have telescopic vision, may be able to have all kinds of uh, you know, capacity, capacities that normal humans don't have. And so this part human, part uh, algorithm and machine uh, entity uh, you know, could be like the superhuman. And what will the superhuman be thinking about the normal human who did not have the money to go and upgrade themselves and who's still, who's sort of a moron dumbed down and who's living this autopilot uh, life of a kind of a happy slave. Well, they think of them like we think of animals, that these are a nice, cute lot. They're cute. And maybe we go and pet them and have some nice conversation. And we think of our old, old heritage, million, uh, uh, you know, generations ago, we used to be like them, but we have evolved and these people have not. So what happens? Do we, do we see a depopulation scenario? Do we see that if these superhumans are very uh, egotistical and very selfish, they may say, these 
humans 1.0 are a nuisance. They are uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, like we think of rats uh, epidemic. These guys are eating up all the food. They're creating all this nonsense, uh, having disease. They're spreading all this disease and virus, and they're creating global warming. And we, the superhumans, the human 2.0, we could run the world with very few people needed who need to work for us. The rest of them we don't need. So let's figure out a depopulation program. And this depopulation will be done in a very nice humanitarian way. Nobody's going to be killed in a gas chamber. We don't want to do all that. We don't want that kind of guilt. But we'll, we'll do it in a way that you know, their birth rate goes down to very little. Uh, however we do it, with whatever vaccinations we do it, or however we do it, we also will keep them very happy. Uh, while they, their population depletes because they don't reproduce, we will keep them very happy with all this augmented reality. So the old human being will, act, will go down in population because, and, and in the meantime, we'll keep them happy. They won't complain. They won't protest and be violent. But the future, future world will belong to a small number of us. So you could have a, 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 a disequilibrium for, uh, you know, Battleground 3 might create a disequilibrium that lasts one or two generations. And at the end, you have a very small population of exceedingly advanced beings, but the rest of humanity kind of wiped out, except you know, providing very quaint services. Now, this is, this is futuristic. The, the rest of my things are now. They're, they don't require futuristic technology. Uh, the battleground one, two, three are now. Uh, battleground four is starting now, but how far it'll go, how, how fast it will grow, uh, is is futuristic, uh, but it is it is a topic of concern. Thank you, Rajiv, for your insightful comments and wisdom on Ground Four. Sounds like it's going to be a fascinating potential future for humanity. Tell us more about Battleground Five. Stress testing the Indian Rashtra. Rashtra is a sort of a loose uh, translation of uh, or, or loose equivalent of uh, nation. Uh, it's a, it's the collection, the the India as a collection, uh, as as a group of people with a certain geography, a certain history, uh, and a collective vested interest uh, is the Indian Rashtra. Uh, I'm stress testing India in a sense, the modern India, and I'm 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 doing it at the level of physical, uh, you know, robustness, which is uh, battleground one and two. Uh, the whole economy, unemployment kind of thing is battleground one, and can it withstand the military uh, attacks that China is inevitably going to bring? Uh, uh, that's battleground two. And battleground three being its own people being very colonized, being very scared, being very uh, much addicted to feeling good, not willing to work too hard, uh, very bored, very much uh, you know sold out to these digital giants, not willing to stand up and fight, uh, confused about who they are, all sorts of things that are part of the battleground three. And battleground four is vulnerability to becoming like zombies, uh, the loss of selfhood in a yogic sense. So basically, I'm stress testing India, uh, applying these criteria. Uh, and, and the battleground five says that things are not looking good for India. Uh, this is this is nothing to do with my my conviction that the future of humanity at large is Vedic. Uh, it, it has to do with the state of politics and society and leadership and and media and intellectuals etc. In India, it's a state of human beings that are 
are, are out there in positions of authority and positions of importance, it has nothing to do with the ideals of the civilization. So while the ideals of the civilization are phenomenal and probably are the future uh, should be adopted by all of humanity, but I don't think India has done that. I think India is neither traditionally, neither true to its own traditions, nor Americanized properly. Uh, in the quest to become American, uh, they are neither here nor there. Uh, they've stopped being who they are, who they are supposed to be. Uh, and they are ch in their quest to chase becoming Americans. They've done a lousy job. It's a cheap copycat, uh, uh, quite hilarious uh, at times. Uh, uh, and so the, India is sort of trapped in, in a place where it doesn't really have its own bearings. And this is, in a nutshell, my uh, prognosis for uh, where India stands. And uh, it's not good news. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that Indians need to take stock of. Thank you, Rajiv, uh, for discussing the five battlegrounds. So quickly, um, is, this, is the battleground the same for each nation, i.e. does each nation have five battlegrounds? And are the tactics the same or different for each nation? Can you share some of your thoughts on that, please? So I would say that battlegrounds one and two uh, which have to do the physical level uh, of your infrastructure, your economy, your unemployment. This, uh, this is applicable everywhere. Uh, battleground two, the geopolitical security is applicable. And similarly, three and four, which are the inner realm of the individual is applicable. When I was writing this book, like all my books, I give it to many people to review and critique and give back comments. So many people, almost every single person, every single American who looked at it said, you know, your battleground five should be United States because all this applies to USA. So many people said, why are you, you, you have a big hit if you talk, if you make a critique of the United States using your four battlegrounds as a reference point. And I promise them I'll do that. I will, I definitely want to go back and write another book, which is US centric rather than India centric. Uh, I, I feel that uh, I would love to collaborate with uh, people from various countries who have a knowledge of their particular country and we could do their battleground five, uh, you know, summarize battlegrounds one through four, rewrite some of it and put in the battleground five from their particular country. I, I really believe that something similar needs to be done for every nation, every country. Uh, and certainly I, I, would, I want to do this for the United States. So it's not necessarily India's, India specific. It's uh, the case study happens to be India in this book but equally you could do a case study for Mexico or you could do a case study for Brazil or, or, or any place like that. Uh, you know, you could do this for European Union or Britain uh, and look at where, what happens, where do they stand in these first four battlegrounds and battleground five would be, you know, putting it all together in terms of their, that particular nation state, how robust it is, is it going to get into disequilibrium, is it going to fall apart, and so on. For instance, I have a thesis, I have a, I have a thesis that I developed in India long ago called Breaking India, which says what are the forces that are fissiparous forces that are pulling India apart. And I now have this thing called Breaking India 2.0, which says that with artificial intelligence, those forces could get worse because they can all use AI and pull India apart. There is, let me just share with you, I also have a thesis called Breaking America. I haven't, I haven't gone, I haven't talked about it, but if someone were to ask me where, what will happen to America in 2035, I would be saying there's different scenarios. There is that scenario. 
It could go Vedic. There is that scenario. There's that scenario. And one of the scenarios is the breaking America scenario. Because what is happening is also what has happened in India with the breaking India uh, is also happening in the United States to some extent with different forces wanting to not have anything to do with each other. And they're really at loggerheads. And, uh, you know, they're all aligned with some international group somewhere that they feel they're part of. Uh, and and th that is more important to them than uh, being together as Americans. I, I think that United States is exceedingly powerful and the breaking, India, the breaking America scenario will not play out, but it's certainly going to try. Uh, and so there's, there, are, there are all these uh, ways, very interesting ways to analyze different countries in the light of this uh, five uh, battleground framework that I have developed. So think of it as a framework that uh, social thinkers, political thinkers could teach in their class and say, okay, understand this framework and pick a country in the world that you know about and apply it to that. And what is a 10-year scenario for uh, using AI and all these technologies? What's a 10-year scenario for that particular country? I think you will have some very interesting research if, if people tried that. Thank you, Rajiv. Um, and one final question. Uh, and by the way, that sounds really fun. I think it should be maybe part of the curriculum that's taught in uh, in universities for people to run these ten-year scenarios in your five battlegrounds. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us about your book beyond the five battles? Because I know there's a lot in there. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, the uh, the the book is uh, having a great reception among people who are very thoughtful and very creative. Uh, I, I'm finding young people very interested in this. At the same time, I'm finding the very established, mature, grown-up people, powerful people shaken up a little bit. I mean, they are so used to telling a lie to their constituents. Some political people are telling a lie. They don't want to talk about these issues. They want to talk about how great everything is. Because God forbid, if they were to admit there are problems, then people expect them to solve those problems. And I'm, I'm finding that the people in leadership positions are not that open to having this conversation. So we'll see where it will go. I will continue persisting. And I have more and more people with open minds, not largely young, but also some grown-up, mature people who, who think that the time has come to step out of our comfort zone, to forget the old allegiances that we had and look at the world from a fresh perspective. And so such people are joining me and aligned with me. I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be able to create, create this movement of like-minded people. So it's, it's still very fresh. The, the book has been out two months uh, and already gained so much traction. Uh, I, I think that as my future volumes come, this will be a movement which will truly be the conversation of the decade, as you put it. Thank you, Rajiv. Um, thank you very much for, uh, for your thoughts and insights about this book. It's, uh, for those that are listening, I believe this book is the pillar of the conversation for the next decade. And so please do check it out. Um, and it's my belief that every single nation, every single business, all academic institutions, citizens, philosophers, yogis, spiritual leaders. This is a conversation that should be included of everybody to self-determine a beneficial future with artificial intelligence. And this book seriously is an exceptional and a remarkable piece of work. 
And I recommend that everybody buys this book and starts to consider seriously how they want to participate in the future of artificial intelligence and what their legacy will be for the world. Thank you, Rajiv. Thank you very much. And namaste to you.